Return with me once again, if you would, to Romans chapter 7. It's been a couple of weeks since we were there. I am looking forward to continuing this vein of thought. If you'll stand when you get there, Romans chapter 7. We'll read the scriptures together. Romans chapter 7, we'll begin reading in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would give us both willing ears to hear and hearts that understand. Father, we know that You don't paint these devastating pictures of what dwells within us except for our own good. Father, what precious truths are here in the verses following this section. What green pastures, what wellsprings of life if we can only understand them. I pray you'd help as we go through this passage this morning that we would understand not just the shell but the kernel. We thank you, Father, for dealing with so many complicated and difficult issues in our Christian life. Showing us what we really are that we may deal with things at the root level. Help us, Lord, to be better equipped to fight the warfare that we fight here on this temporary earth. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, of course, we are still in the middle of this uh, tremendous portion of the Word of God, namely uh, Romans 6 and 7, which is not the only, but is certainly one of the major passages dealing with the subject of our sanctification, our Christian growth, and also with our ability to disciple others into sanctification themselves, and particularly uh, in respect to how we deal with our sin nature. It probably would not be a surprise to most of you if I said we live in an age of tremendous shallowness, uh, particularly when it comes to the field of so-called religion. I fear that the sum total of a lot of preaching that claims to be Christian is really nothing more than do good and you will be happy. And if that doesn't do the trick why we've got a dozen programs to join and coupled with some money in the offering plate, that's sure to paste a smile upon your face for time and eternity. But you know, for the true, real Christian who is bent not just on externals, but upon obeying the living God, both in spirit and in truth. What do they soon find? They soon find that doing good many times is more complicated than just saying the words. You know, it's one thing to recognize the need to grow or the need to conquer our own indwelling nature, but it's quite another thing to be taught by the Spirit of God the path to that victory that we know we need. Hopefully most of us remember in Romans chapter 6, the heart burden of that chapter is really dealing with the central question, how can I not sin, despite the fact that I still possess a sin nature? Well, that's that's a wonderful question to ask. But hopefully we remember also, moving into Romans 7, that I made the statement that Romans 7 really presents a deeper problem than that of Romans 6. In Romans 7 the problem is, how can I do good 
in spite of the shocking wickedness and depravity of the nature that I still possess, which follows me to the door of sacrifice, which haunts me in the prayer closet, which follows me in here to the meeting of the saints, which tries to contaminate my most holy and righteous deeds, which speaks to my inner thoughts no matter where I go. How can I do good in spite of that inward enemy? I think we can sense from Paul's tone and his use of vocabulary that he himself found the battle of Romans 7 to be far more of a devastating crisis than that of Romans 6. Because, again, it represents perhaps a more deep problem. Now, I want to deal, before we go any further, with what I would say is probably one of the major theological elephants in the room in regards to Romans 7. If you've read much on that chapter, as as far as the opinions of fallen mortals go, you've run across a discussion that essentially is asking this question. What was Paul's spiritual state when he penned the words of Romans 7? Any of you ever run across that? Was Paul writing the contents of this chapter from the perspective of one who was indeed a child of the living God? One who possessed a supernatural birth and a deed to a heavenly mansion, having had his sins forgiven and is now in Christ? Or is Paul writing from the perspective of one who was yet in the goal of bitterness and the bond of iniquity, being dead in trespasses and sins? Well, that certainly is an important question. Uh, Because we're going to come up with very different conclusions if we get that one wrong. Uh, You might not be surprised to know those of various theological persuasions, especially those that are trying to teach some sort of eradication of sin nature. You know, they have to deal with this passage in a certain way, and they do the same thing to 1 John chapter 1. You have to force Paul into the mold of being a lost person in Romans 7, or their system doesn't work. Alright, so what was Paul here in Romans 7? Well, the answer is it depends which part you're talking about. Really, if you take the grammar and the plain tenses of the verbs going through this chapter, I would say taking it at face value, it's not incredibly complicated to determine the answer to that. Alright, the first section we dealt with last week, verses 1 through 6. Paul is speaking, once again, general positional truth. Things that are true of all of God's people... So far, he's not bouncing off of his own personal experience in that section. You'll remember what he's establishing is the fact that you and I, as believers in Christ, are dead to the law. And its dominion over us is no longer in effect, though sometimes we act like it is. But then, you'll find from verses 7 on through the rest of the chapter, Paul begins to go into this explanation of his intense personal experience. And from this verse through the end of the chapter... The pronouns I and me and my and myself, referring to Paul, occur 47 times from here through the end of the chapter. And lest you think Paul enjoys speaking of himself, let me remind you, he's not painting a very flattering picture. I, for one, find it noteworthy when it comes to his so-called trip to heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, he had almost nothing to say. But when it comes to the ravages and the devastation of his indwelling sin nature, he has plenty to say about himself because he knew that was going to be a help to the Lord's people far more than the other. So we have to pay close attention to the tenses. In in this section we just read this morning, a few moments ago, verses 7 through 13, what you'll find is it's in the past tense. Okay, look in verse 7. I had not known sin, past tense. I had not known lust, except the loss that thou shalt not covet. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me, past tense. Without the law, sin was dead. I was alive. When the commandment came, sin revived, and I died, and so on. So, what that passage is talking about that we're hearing this morning is his lost days as a Pharisee. He's talking about how the law wreaked utter havoc on the inner chambers of his mind. Can you imagine Paul's controversy with the Mosaic law that he claimed to stand in support of? Here he is, this gorgeously arrayed Pharisee, claiming meticulous obedience to the law, but at times there's this nagging and stabbing voice of conscience that he couldn't seem to shake. And then he stands there presiding over the death of Stephen. 
And what he beheld there is a man who had attained to the very righteousness that he himself sought. Only this man found it based on the righteousness of another, not by his own works. You see, Paul knew inwardly he couldn't even love his neighbor as himself like the law demanded. But here's one that's loving his enemy like Christ. Oh, what a goad in his conscience that would have been. And then in the third section, Lord willing, that we'll cover next week, it comes back to the present tense. I'm not going to take the time to go through that. You can go through it on yourself. So the answer to the question is, Paul's giving his past experience in relation to the law and his own sin nature, both when he was lost and bringing that into the days of his salvation. So it's applicable to, to both cases. And so the section we just read, we're flashing back to Paul's inward turmoil that he experienced as a so-called law-abiding Pharisee. And like he does in so many other parts, he begins it with a question. In verse 7, what shall we say then is the law sin? I'll remind us again, ten times in this epistle, the phrase God forbid or meganoida appears, which is essentially the strongest possible way of expressing that as a preposterous conclusion. Absolutely not. And in every single case, Paul is really issuing a a sort of preemptive strike. He'll teach a doctrinal truth, and then by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he knows the logical extension that the human mind is going to go to, and he immediately jumps ahead and asks the question for us. And in each case, he sets the question up to look at it, and then he dashes it on the ground to pieces like Moses did with the tables at the foot of the mount. And remember some of the questions, I hope. Romans 3, verse 3, I'll just paraphrase it. Essentially, the discussion there is, all right, if the Jews are God's chosen people, if they're the ones designated to carry His covenant and manifest His nature and to be His mouthpiece to the world, doesn't the fact that the vast majority of Jewish people in history really hated God and despised His Word, does that not call into question His faithfulness? Of course, the answer is, mankind's obedience or disobedience does nothing to touch or change or reflect on the character of God. Though all men were to perish in the flames of hell and none were saved, God Himself would lose nothing. And God Himself would still be right. Verse 5, same chapter, since our natural unrighteousness serves to reflect good upon God's righteousness and to make it shine all the more. How is God right to judge me if all I'm doing is making Him look better? Of course, the answer is, God judges according to His own character. And even though He uses mankind's wicked deeds to further His purposes, that doesn't bring them off the hook and respect the judgment. Beginning of chapter 6. If the power of sin has been broken and demolished and grace now reigns supreme, then... Can't we imbibe a little bit in sinful activity? Because after all, it really has no power, and the more we sin, the more grace abounds. And of course, the answer is absolutely not, because you are dead to sin. Here's what these questions demonstrate once again. I think they're another proof, unmistakably, of divine inspiration. The fact that God knows very well the inner thoughts of His creatures that He has made... And he really asked the question that many of us are too spiritual to verbalize. Secondly, I think these questions are a big warning to all of us, or at least they should be. Here's what I mean. What they illustrate is that our tendency, even as believing people, when we hear solid doctrinal truth, is to take that solid doctrinal truth and still come to wrong conclusions with it. You see, there's not just the danger of wrong doctrine, there's the danger of wrong conclusions based on human reason in response to that doctrine, which is why we need to have our mind constantly renewed and cleansed by the Word of God. It's not just to discharge a duty, to get a proof text. It's to train our minds to think God's thoughts after Him. And I think this is especially true that the deeper a particular truth is, the more in danger we are of inserting human logic to the point where it clouds divine revelation. We see that vividly illustrated 
and the so-called contradiction between sovereignty and free will. Both sides set up their artillery and they begin to fire away. And really what they're both doing is clinging to one side of the truth that's revealed while logically explaining away the other. Why can't we just take at face value the entire Word of God? I think it's an interesting discussion in Romans 9. We'll get there soon. Here's mankind portrayed as questioning God's decrees. And the answer from heaven is essentially, silence your mouth. God really gives no answer in verse 19 and 20. He's essentially saying, who do you think you are? You who live a century at best. You who dwell in one little section on a piece of dust referred to as planet earth. Are you going to raise your mind and fist in defiance of the God of heaven who dwells outside of time? Are you going to question His decrees and justice? Of course, the answer is to humble us in the dust, not to give us a logical explanation. All right, what's the question here? Is the law sin? Now, really, that's not so unreasonable of a question considering what's been discussed in the last two chapters. You remember our death to sin, positionally, Romans 6. Our death to sin and our death to the law, Romans 7, early on. Both of those deaths to sin and to law occurred simultaneously upon the same old rugged cross 2,000 years ago. We saw just last time in verses 5 and 6 that when our sin nature came into contact with the law of God, the commands of God, what they came together to produce, the net effect was fruit unto death. It's not a very exciting thing that we want to produce, I hope. So what's the natural, logical logical, uh, assumption? Well, sin, my nature, and law must be co-conspirators against me. They're partners in crime. Obviously, there's major problems with the law. Does anybody really think that way? You know, there's vast segments of so-called evangelicalism that treat the New Testament commands that way. Their litmus test for whether or not they should obey something is whether they feel like it. And if a command's difficult to obey or irksome to the flesh, then they determine that must be legalism. My Christian liberty is just ignore what God says. I don't like separating from evil. The problem must be the command, right? I remember before we moved from Alaska, the big discussion on legalizing marijuana was up. They eventually legalized it. But I remember there's all this banter going back and forth and there's editorials in the newspaper and all the, you know, the varying sides giving their viewpoint. And I remember meeting, reading one piece on why we should legalize marijuana. And this is from a seemingly intelligent person saying this with a straight face. But here was one of their reasons. One of the benefits of legalizing marijuana is we will now have less criminals on the street. Because there's one less law to break. Why not just do away with all law in our country? We'll be the only country in the world that doesn't have a single criminal. We'll just make everything legal because after all, the law is the problem. See how our mind works though? Of course, once again, Paul's answer, God forbid, absolutely not. Now I think most of us, if not all of us in this room, would heartily agree... The Old Testament law is not the system of life for the New Testament Christian. In fact, the standards in the New Testament, you'll find, are higher. They go from difficult to impossible. I hope you're thankful sitting here this morning that you are under grace and not under law. But at the same time, do you realize also what a monstrous conclusion it is to make the statement... That the Mosaic law is somehow flawed or immoral or wrong. And that's the viewpoint he's trying to blow out of the water. It's true the law is referred to as a yoke of bondage, which we nor our fathers were able to bear. The law has been replaced by what's called a better covenant. And there's a whole litany of statements in the New Testament regarding that. You know some of them, I'm not going to go through them. But those can be termed maybe not necessarily positive regarding the law for the most part. But here's what we have to understand. God is fundamentally incapable of giving things that are inferior or flawed or sinful. He can allow them, but God is in the business of giving perfect gifts. 
Here's what I mean by that. The law is not something that God threw together while He was thinking of a better idea. I think a lot of people unwittingly view it that way. Do you understand? The law was the best, and I mean the best way for God to accomplish several purposes at that time in history. The law was the best way to instruct His people about His holy character and justice and hatred of sin. The law was the best way to prepare the world for the importance of the doctrine of substitutionary blood atonement. You know, God in His perfect foreknowledge knew someday one would point and say, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And that that was the best picture to convey to our minds what salvation consisted of, and the best way to prepare us to understand that statement was to have centuries of people bringing dying and bloody sacrifices to burn on an altar in preparation for the day when the Messiah came. The law was the best way to prepare Israel to look for a dying lamb and not the conquering military hero. Who's going to come later, by the way? The glorified Christ. But you see, the bleeding lamb had to come first. The law, I think it's, it's helpful to view it as, as, as almost like the ministry of John the Baptist. Tell me, was John the Baptist's ministry flawed? Evil? Bad? John the Baptist's ministry was a temporary ministry of preparation, but the day came where the scaffold was removed, where he says, I must decrease and he must increase in the same way the law came so that Christ would be magnified all the more when he finally came into human history now what follows is quite a discussion on Paul's experience when the law was applied to his life while he was still in Adam remember everybody's either in Christ or in Adam when Paul was a lost Pharisee Here's the experience of the battle between law and his flesh that he went through. Because inside this whited sepulcher of, a, of, of the pomp and glory Pharisee, there's the nauseating stench of death and decay. And the same is true for every single fallen sinner that is confronted with the legal truth of God. God wants to open up the sepulcher and show what lies inside. So the first thing that happened, verse 7, is that the law served to plainly define and reveal sin. I had not known sin, he says, but by the law. That doesn't mean he never sinned. But what he's saying is sin took on a hazy definition until it was crystallized when the law of God came and showed concretely what constituted rebellion against the living God and it was then that it drove the sword through his very soul. He just gives one example. One blade from God's moral plowshare that tore through the fiber of his fallen wicked heart. He says, I didn't know lust except the law said, thou shalt not covet. Oh, he lusted all right, but the problem he thought all was well until the law came and defined it for him and said, you are in error. You remember what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10 The law is good if a man use it lawfully. The law was not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for whoremongers, and so on the list goes. You know, it does little good to define sin in general terms. And may I say that's one of the main errors of modern day Christendom, is being too general when it comes to the demands of God. You go out in the community, you tell people, well, you know, sin is anything God doesn't like. How about we set up a state fair ministry or Lewis and Clark County Fair? We'll put up a, a big scaffold and get one of those megaphones. And I'll just climb up there as the crowds walk through the gate and I'm going to yell out, God says not to do bad things. Well, aside from being terribly annoyed... Most of the people are going to agree with what I'm saying. Because the problem is they have a wrong definition of God and they have a wrong definition of bad. 
Even the most hard-hearted reprobate will sit and nod his head in agreement when you quote him Romans 3.23. But when you take out God's plowshare and begin to probe his heart, it's a whole different story. And part of the law's schoolmaster, when Paul mentions it in Galatians, is it's an instructor to show men plain, defined guidelines for just how perverse they are in the sight of a God of absolutes. Now, I remember some years ago I was doing a trim job, and any of you, any of you ever cut up MDF? That fake trim stuff and the particulates are just awful. And it's the middle of winter. We got the doors shut, me and a friend of mine. And here we are chopping away. We're running routers and table saws. And, and here we are breathing all of this stuff for well over an hour. I eventually had to get something from outside. And so I opened the side door to the garage and this beam of sunlight just shot into the room. And it's amazing, this same air that I've been breathing, all of a sudden my reaction was to choke and to gag. And it was the same air. There's a Christian friend I was working with. He looked at me sarcastically. He said, hey, shut the door. You're making it dusty in here. (laughs) And what he was illustrating was this truth. You see, the sinful heart doesn't really mind morality vaguely defined. It really doesn't mind religion that's not dogmatic. It really doesn't mind a lot of things. But when supernatural light floods the room, When sin loses its haze and the definition becomes very clear and runs contrary to his own nature, all of a sudden that same complacent person becomes absolutely furious because you've exposed what he really is. It's one thing the law does. Nobody can really be convicted of sin until they know something of who God is and what He expects and demands and deserves of them. That's the root of real conviction. But verse 8, what's amazing, here's what he finds. His sinful nature rises up in response. Verse 8. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. Now that phrase, I just want to point out, but sin. Sin is personified. He's not talking about just an act. He's personifying the sinful fallen nature. He's saying, here's how my nature responds. We see similar similar terminology in verse 9, verse 11, verse 13. But here's what he says, and we have got to understand this. As a result of hearing the demands of a holy God, he actually became a worse person. The end of the verse, he says, without the law, sin was dead. Now the meaning, he's not saying you didn't sin, but here's what he's saying. He's saying that the sinful nature, when it believes that it reigns supreme, and that all challenges to its authority seem subdued, then it rests almost in a dormant state. You see, the man there thinks he's really in control. He can really turn to Christ when he wants. He can really change his nature when he wants. He can stop sinning. Let's say you, have a, you live in a quiet neighborhood and here moves in a neighbor. He has this monstrous pit bull. Big old jowls. Spiked collar. Scars. And all that dog does when those people move in for the first month is bark and snarl at the end of his chain at every single thing that breathes in his vicinity. But you know, after a month or so, he kind of calms down. And it's not that The nature of the beast has changed. It's just that he fancies in his mind the neighborhood's been brought under his dominion. There's really no need to snarl and bark and bite. Now let's say you have a friend over and you're explaining to him just how horrible this dog really is. And so you go out there at midnight to where the dog's sleeping at the end of this chain and you have a two million candle power spotlight. And you click it on right in that dog's face. You kick him in the ribs and start yelling at him. You know what's going to happen? That complacent animal is going to become a demonic savage beast bent on killing anything and anybody who's within range of his powerful jaws. And may I say that that is exactly what happens 
when a lost person, especially one who's religious, is confronted with the real commands of God at the heart level. The beast awakens. Look what he says. Uh, The commandment came and what did it do? Sin took the commandment and wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. That word means a longing. A strong desire for forbidden fruit. Do we hear what he's saying? As a result of hearing God's prohibitions, Paul found his own wicked heart actually woke up and sprang to life from its slumber and all of a sudden he was overrun with unbelievably powerful temptations. The very thing that our nature is told not to do instantly becomes our great desire. Such is how our flesh thinks and behaves. Let's say I'm going to take Benjamin, we're going to go for a drive. He'll take his pickup truck and I'm going to take mine. We're going to test this out. So uh, we go on some highway out 50, 60 miles out of town and we park at a pullout. And he just leaves his truck there, locks it up and, and, and we drive off. We go another 20 miles up the road and we park my truck in an abandoned pullout. Only on my truck we put five nice big rocks on the hood. And right across the grill a big sign that says, Do not use these rocks to break out my windshield. Which vehicle is most likely to be missing all glass, not just the windshield, within 24 hours? Well, the sign says not to touch it. The sin nature is stirred up by prohibition. Why is it if you put a speed limit here in Montana that says maximum speed 120 miles per hour, people are going to pass you going 127? I heard of a family some time ago, you know what people do in neighborhoods, they want to get rid of something, they want to save themselves a trip to Goodwill, and so they just they take a piece of furniture and they put it out there at the end of the driveway and just says free, and just someone take it. And so they took a desk and they set it out at the end of the driveway and they put free on it. It sat there for three days. And they thought, let's run an experiment in human psychology. So they put another sign on the desk that says desk, $10. It was stolen that night. But here's what's so important, one of the things. As we deal with the souls of men, we have got to understand the principle that when the law enters and begins to expose the dust and the savage beast within a man's heart, many times they are going to become a worse person for a time. That loved one you're praying for, that co-worker, the door opens to begin to speak to them about the law of God, to begin to probe their conscience and show them what a monster of iniquity they are. And the flesh reacts and says, I can take care of this problem. And it's stirred up and the savage beasts awake. And all of a sudden, what happened to them? I thought they were close to hearing the truth. Well, this is what's happening to them. The bulldog's been roused to life by the entrance of the law. What was Paul like after Stephen's death? Do you remember? And here he presides over Stephen's martyrdom. And then while he's kicking against those pricks, we find him in the following chapter, breathing out threatenings and slaughter, chasing God's people to all ends of the world. He could chase them in order to commit them to prison and have them put to death. All the while he's fighting against the truth and he'd become a worse individual and he knew it. See, Paul says in verse 9, I was alive without the law once. What he meant was he was self-satisfied. He was somewhat at peace. There was no deep arrows of the Spirit's probing. There was no blinding supernatural light shining in the dungeon of his soul. But with the entrance of the commandments, illuminated by the Holy Ghost, coupled with his awakening conscience, his nature within surged with new life and energy. And the effect on him was like a kind of death. The temporary peace departed. Misery and guilt seized his soul. He found he was unable to contain the savage beast dwelling within. Now notice his perplexing conclusion in verse 10. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Do you think that was a difficult pill to swallow for a Pharisee? 
Several times in the Old Testament you can find variations of statements that essentially say keeping the law equals life. The chief message of a zealous Pharisee trained at the feet of Gamaliel to the sinful masses surrounding him was essentially this do and thou shalt live. Yet internally, the more he drank of this supposed water of life, the more he found it to be bitter as wormwood in the waters of Marah. And this law in which he thought he could pillow his weary and troubled head really proved to be more of a chopping block with the blade of a guillotine glinting in the sun just above his neck. You remember the statement in Romans 2 when Paul is tearing apart the religious moral man? I think one of the reasons he was able to be so surgical, at least from the human side of things, is because he was describing the exact questions the Spirit of God was pounding upon his mind. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and provest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, right? You're confident that you're a guide of those a guide of the blind and a light to those in darkness, a teacher of the foolish and instructor of babes. You have a form of knowledge in the truth and the law, but then he asks, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, do you break it? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. He was echoing the sentiments of conviction in his own soul. But you know, in verse 11, his perverse nature still isn't finished. For sin, there it is again, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Now, do you notice it's the same terminology as back in verse 8? Sin took occasion by the commandment, seized hold upon the very commands of God, and brought something entirely different than their intent. You know, there, the sin nature stirred up all manner of sinful passions and made him a worse person. But here, what's happening? His sin nature is taking the commands of God perverting them, and using them to lead him unto death. Tell me, who does that sound like? Who is it who twists Scripture and lies and murders through his lies? Well, the accuser of the brethren, the wicked one, but guess what else does that? Your own fallen nature tries to do the same sort of thing. It's going to take the commands of God in response to the conviction of God and try to turn them upon its head and come up with a wrong conclusion. That's why we must be so grounded in the Scriptures. Now what's the chief deception leveled at those who are under conviction of sin? By the joint forces of the uh, forces of blackness in their own nature, the chief deception is going to be on understanding the Gospel and His work to blind their minds considering the truth of the free grace of God given through Christ. You can piggyback off of 2 Corinthians 4.4 and read where that specific statement is given. So in other words, Paul found that even while facing an intolerable weight of guilt and misery within, his own nature led him right back to the executioner for help with encouragement to try harder next time. Why do you think the cathedrals and the temples of the proponents of false gospels are swelling the walls with attendance this morning? Why is that? It's because you have a huge cross-section of American religiosity. They've been at least somewhat confronted with the truth of God. That's produced a picture of themselves that they don't like. It's produced a stirring up of their own sin nature and a desire to do something about the problem. But then their flesh steps back in and says, friend, you can keep the law. Just join such and such group and keep all their regulations. We'll take care of this problem. No need to be alarmed. 
So you have thousands of people in ornately decored robes. And the sum total of a so-called ministry is doing nothing more than trying to change the color of an Ethiopian skin or scrape the spots off of a leopard's back. It's changing externals. And their sin nature takes the law and twists it and dries them there and blinds them to the truth of the gospel. Verse 12, here's what we find. We find that the law is not the problem at all, although it seems to produce bondage, misery, and guilt and death. And really, here's the question, or the answer to the question in verse 7. Look what he says about the law. The law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. Now the description here really should be no surprise. Holiness, justice, goodness don't just appear in the universe out of nowhere. They're reflections of the perfections of God Himself. The law is holy. It is pure and undefiled and set apart as the words spoken directly by God from the holy mount. The law is just. It's perfectly righteous in its claims and its penalties and is no respecter of persons. The law is good. You know, in and of itself, the law really is, you could say, designed to produce happiness and contentment. I mean, so what's the deal? You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read you part of Psalm 19. Maybe you remember this passage, really one of the most beautiful descriptions of the law given in the Scriptures. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Well, what a description that is. But that brings us to another seeming paradox which we find in verse 13. Another one of Paul's preemptive questions. Number 7 out of 10 going through the book of Romans. And here's this question. If the law is holy and just and good, why is it when the law penetrates my hardened heart, it makes me unholy and unjust and anything But good is the law at fault. Paul jumps in and says, oh no, the law is not the issue at all. You know, I've told people from time to time when I thought they needed to hear it. You know, there's actually two ways of salvation. Did you know that? Way number one is you can be impeccably perfect in every thought, word, and deed from birth until death. You can, by the strength of your own virtue, attain the very holiness of God and be as perfect in character as He is Himself. How's that going so far? Or you can come the way that God has prescribed through Christ. You know, the reason the law was insufficient is not because of any fault of the law, but because of the wretchedness of the entire human race and their inability to produce supernatural change in themselves. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. For if that first covenant, speaking of the law, if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. But finding fault with them talking about the Jews. He saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So God gave the holy, just, and good old covenant, which He knew mankind could not keep, to prepare the world for the new covenant, which God would keep Himself. In which He would take away the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. In which He would take away iniquities and remember them no more. And which He would provide the spotless Lamb of Himself, for Himself, and by Himself, and guarantee this covenant. And all mankind could do was break the first one. Now does any good come out of this war, supposedly, between the law of God and our sin nature? 
We've already talked about some of it, but in verse 13, here's what it is. But sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. You see, it's not just defining exactly what constitutes sin, but it's bringing before our minds the devastating truth of just how evil of a thing rebellion against the living God really is. In other words, what happens as a result of that inward tension, what's supposed to happen is it's supposed to bring us to the place where we abandon any and all hope in our natural selves because we see what our nature does even with something holy and just and good like the law. Tell me something. If your nature can so twist the words of God themselves, what will your nature do with that which is sinful? Not only is that the outer posts of the gateway to salvation, because if someone's truly going to be saved, they have to come to a point where they cannot fix the problem themselves. They cannot change themselves. They cannot clothe themselves. They cannot make themselves righteous. But this understanding is also the gateway to greener pastures and our own Christian sanctification. Really, this sets the stage for the crisis of the last section that will be in Lord willing next week. Now, notice the conclusion will be done. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. We know, he's saying this is a universally held truth among God's people. But here's what we know, or we're supposed to know. The law is spiritual. Now, he's not, he's not contrasting spiritual, meaning you can't see it, with something you can put your hands on. In fact, the word there for spiritual is pneumatikos. He's saying we know that the law was derived by the Holy Spirit of God. It's an expression of His exact character and therefore is holy, just, and good. And the law has no problem with it. But what is the problem? Notice the change in tense, and this is where we head into that last section, which we'll get to next week. But I am carnal. Not I was. I am. You see, what he's doing is he's taken the same nature that he just described as wreaking such havoc on a self-righteous life as a lost Pharisee, and he's bringing that same nature into the discussion of his life as a Christian. 1 Timothy 1, he says, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I firmly believe that misunderstanding our dual nature, to the extent that God describes it, causes an unbelievable amount of bondage and guilt and confusion and instability in the hearts and minds of the Lord's people. Do you understand that a failure failure to embrace the depth of wickedness that God describes about your fallen nature still as a Christian will keep you from gaining the victory that you seek so badly because you still don't know how to fight the enemy. You still confuse temptation to sin with sin itself. You're still rattled when right at the doors of sacrifice you hear this perverse voice within questioning motive and everything else. So many people say, I don't want to see how perverse I really am. What if God keeps distance from me? Do you think He doesn't already know? Do you think He doesn't know the depths of depravity that dwell in each of us and what we would commit when He called us from eternity? Why is it our tendency is to shrink back from embracing this full, ugly, and black, and dark truth so that we can step out into the light and fight it properly? Next week, Lord willing, we'll be talking about the undiminished traitor within And that's exactly what it is, is undiminished. And oh, how we have to understand that. I hope I'm talking to a truly Christian audience this morning. 
Have you personally believed in Christ for yourself? Can you stand up and boldly say, my sins are forgiven? Can you say, I know the way of salvation and I've embraced it, I've stepped down it? Oh, I know I can't save myself, I'm too corrupt. But I trust the word of the living God. I trust in the Lamb who shed His blood and died for me. There's one way of salvation. Die a minute. Can you say that? I plead with you if you can't. Don't run from that question. I know myself and many others here would love to discuss that with you. Love to. Let's pray. Father, help us to have a healthy sense of our own wretchedness. Not to drive us into the dirt. Lord, but that we can walk in true spirituality instead of the counterfeit that's everywhere around us. That we would know what it means to abandon self and rest in the righteousness of Christ for sanctification. Not in our performance. Not in our sincerity. Father, thank you for telling us exactly what we are, and I thank you, you already know it. I thank you, Lord, you're not shocked by any of these revelations about us, for you've given them, you made us. I thank you, you know every dark skeleton in our closet long before you called us unto salvation. You knew every sin we would commit long before we committed it, and yet you still extended such mercy to us. Father, we praise you and magnify you for your grace, for as we see how wicked we are, we see how gracious you are. How long-suffering, how patient, how ready to forgive and to pardon. Lord, if there's any here who are not partakers of the new covenant, haven't been given a heart of flesh, have not been born again, do not have their sins taken away. Lord, let them not rest. I pray the law would do its withering work in their soul, would define sin before their eyes and show them their own radical depravity and the approaching flames of judgment that have to come. Help them to seek the one way of escape. That you may be glorified through their life in eternity because you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.